The Rockonomics Podcast is sponsored by Brooks Bars, the delicious snack bars co-founded by the assistant strength coach and sports scientist for the Seattle Sounders Football Club. They're full of good and free of bad. They're gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, egg-free, and come in four delicious flavors. Apple pecan, apricot chocolate, cherry espresso, and original flavors. Sorry, <laughs> original flavor. They fill you up and keep you full, and we love them here at Rockonomics. Get some of your own at select Whole Foods throughout the South and 150-plus retailers in 16 states. Find out where you can buy Brooks Bars or have them delivered to your door. Go to brooksbars.com. That's B-R-U-K-S-B-A-R-S.com to find out more. This is Rockonomics Podcast number four. I'm your host, Dill, along with producer Nick Fry. We're here to explore the price tags and paychecks of the business that is sex, drugs, and rock and roll by talking to people in and around the music and entertainment industry. And one of those people is today's guest, photographer Mitchell Carney. Mitchell was in the right place at the right time as a college student in New York City in the early 70s, studying photography when the punk scene took root in the clubs of the Lower East Side. Hitting those clubs with camera in hand resulted in iconic images of Blondie, Joy Ramone, Lou Reed, Patti Smith, and Andy Warhol, just to name a few. So let's get started and hear more about Mitchell and how these encounters came to be. So I... I was clued off by an interview I read, um, I think it was a number of years ago, about you, that uh, photography was not your first love. It was music that was your first love. Yes. I, um, I am a better photographer because I am a drummer. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was eight years old, my, uh, my parents took my sister, brother, and I, my brother was only a year old, uh, to visit my grandmother. And she had the most incredible music collection on three-quarter-inch cassette deck tape. Oh, my gosh. This is literally the early 60s. Okay. And I was amazed because these things got slid in, and she got to listen to Tony Bennett, Perry Como, and a few other people over and over and over again. It was the precursor to 8-track. It was three-quarter-inch tape in cassettes right just like I mean, three-quarter video i was gonna say this sounds like, like film it is it is the same technology but in pure audio not audio video mix back then right and she'd slide this thing in and it would it would just lower itself down into the deck and then when she wanted to play another one she hit a button and it was like the biggest cassette deck i'd ever seen <laughs> at the time that's funny. I've never heard of that. I mean, even like I remember, you know, in the '70s, like the the record clubs, you can get, you know, obviously you get eight track tapes, you can get LPs, but you also get real real. They were selling reel to reel back. They then. were still selling so the the little stuff, the quarter inch. Right, right. But the three quarter inch—that's a lot of what I used to work with in in advertising. It was all, you know, that's all. Every commercial was, you know, eventually put on that. That was a master. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. So, what was uh like? Do you remember what what was the artist? Or you know, artists that kind of you know caught your ear. Um, well, I mean, everything on Ed Sullivan, from the Beatles forward. 
that was kind of like I mean I remember Ed Sullivan before I could remember right but you know the Beatles were live and but did were you were you how old were you when that that happened little really really young and um but like was that the show and I, I'm I'm unfamiliar I'm I'm familiar with the Beatles going on Ed Sullivan and yeah. creating this insane craze that started everything but did they ever come back to Ed Sullivan was like was sure. there was it yeah, a, they, were, they were on they were on, on many times right they were on in in early 64 and then they were on at least two or three months later and then I mean they literally came back a couple of times and then they started having they had the stones right right I remember looking remember dirty faced there. and you know just the anti-Beatles they were they yeah. were it was just wonderful but it was something like that it was the Beatles that whole you know I guess British invasion, or and that all you know was going on while Motown was was rolling. I mean, mm-hmm. they had they had already. I mean, the the transistor radio, you know, stuck to my cousin's ear. We were too young to own a transistor radio. You know, we would drop it and break it. So you know, mom and dad were like, "Oh no, not yet. Oh, you got to be older." Oh, yeah. but my cousin Gail was running around, ah, this thing on her on her ear and listening to pop pop tunes. Uh, w ABC, right? Cousin Bruce Morrow, and right away was did uh, the percussion? Did that you know speak to you on a primal level, or it was did... interesting? Um, we went to we went to visit my grandmother once a month, and uh, she was just the, this wonderfully free spirit. And my brother was born a year earlier, and I was showing off. We were outside on the back patio and there were all these glasses on the table and uh everyone had been my parents were drinking they were you know just having a good time and, and i picked up two spoons i started banging on all the glasses and and my grandmother turns to my dad and says ken you ought to give him drum lessons <laughs> and my mom says and my, looks at my dad okay and my dad says okay and that's how it all began that easy yeah so i got to uh learn every jazz beat that there were from a guy who was in a big band and uh, supposedly took lessons from Gene Krupa. Okay. And uh, this is where all the big band guys went to, northern New Jersey, um, after the big band era ended. Okay. Why do you know why why is that? Um, It was so close to Manhattan, and you just... You know, you you needed a place that you can afford to live. Right. I mean, was it Atlantic? Were they playing Atlantic City? Were they playing the uh, Adirondacks? Or there were actually clubs uh, in northern New Jersey that that they basically propagated and occupied, and you know, it was kind of like going. Uh, you know, they they had clubs that were big band clubs that were much smaller than anything like the, the right. Copa or anything like that. But mm-hmm. you know, they were still happening in those places as well i mean that it didn't truly die it just it just receded right um and were these private lessons were they part of elementary school or no it was it was was after school private lessoning you know once a week right on the kit or you know no it was a a pad okay two sticks and the, the snare drum didn't come until you know eight, gotta, eight, gotta, eight months later. That was a rental. You got to earn that. <laughs> and you know, I had to prove that I was really learning something. And and then you know, and then a drum set literally appeared under the Christmas tree a year after that. Oh, nice. That's yeah. A- so three years of drum lessons, we got a drum 
set and then the garage basement bands you know it was too cold in the garage right. in new jersey yep so uh, basement bands everyone had a, someone had a basement now how old were you when you know when you started to uh, play with other kids you know in a band setting uh, I think uh, the, the first band was in uh, late sixth grade, early seventh grade. Okay. And um, so, yeah, we were we were playing in Agata de Vida and <laughs> all this kind of crazy, wonderful late '60s stuff. You right. know, we were. I mean, the guys, the guitar players were were playing vintage guitars that weren't vintage yet; they were brand new. All right. Funny. But they all wish they had them back. <laughs> Now, did you ask, have aspirations back then to, you know, make music a career, or was it kind of, ah, no. were you just young enough to where it's like, you know, you do it, you get a little attention from the girls, you know? It was, it was just to get together and make music. Uh, I, I saw no reason to uh, think that uh, we were, I was, of, I had no interest in, in trying to make a career out of, okay. out of music. It was... Uh, it was an avocation that continues to this day. Okay. So how did uh, the photography bug um, come into your life? It, uh, it occurred uh, while helping my friend Eddie O'Donnell uh, deliver newspapers, an afternoon paper. I was, uh, he was the guitar, well, he was the rhythm guitar player in our band, and I would help him delivers newspapers and there was a guy up on a hill taking a picture of something turns out to be the moon in the head of a nail at dusk he was taking a picture of the moon's reflection in the head of a nail no he was he was using a macro bellows attached lens and turned the head of a nail into a blazing moon oh my gosh it was it was totally rusted and at dusk, everything looks better than it does any other time sure. of the day. The magic hour. And he says, "Do you want to see? You want to see what I'm taking a picture of?" I said, yeah, man. And but I would never would have gone over there and talked to him. No, it was Eddie who was, you know, he was the extrovert. Right. He was the one pushing. He says, "Don't you have an interest in photography?" <laughs> oh, a little bit, a little bit. You know, I was using my dad's uh, Kodak reflex rangefinder and snapping pictures of this and that and just starting to have this kind of curious reality that was stepping into play having you know been in this band and been right. doing that trying to figure out whether i wanted to be an architect or a or whatever right and um so yeah it became a a, a magic moment of oh my gosh it was it was like a lightning bolt of so you can do this with that, okay? You know, right. and uh, you know it was just a it was a it's a fantastic little reality. Now you mentioned your your buddy being the outgoing one. Were you an introvert? Were you like yeah. metaphorically? Were you the drummer who you know sat in the back and right kept the beat for the I, others I, to stand up? Exactly. Front? <laughs> I, I could I could sing uh, Robert Plant's immigrant song high notes, and it wasn't a falsetto. But uh, otherwise, they were the singers. They were the front guys. I was in the back just laying down the beat. And was photography a way for you to express oh, yeah. yourself? Absolutely. It was, it was the key to the highway. So was that then, was this uh, prior, you went to SVA, correct? I ultimately, yes. After, after four years of architectural training at a high, technical high school, okay. uh, I decided I was not going to... Uh, study photography at Rochester Institute because of the 
the pure white scenes in every catalog that they showed of the campus. Right. RIT, are you talking? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I remember. I visited there. Yeah, I mean, it was. It, it's colder there than Buffalo. Yeah, it's well. It's that's actually my part of the woods, so yeah, I'm well aware of the. Uh, I mean, we had winter <laughs> in, in yeah. Clifton, but you know, it wasn't uh, anything like up there. And I was like, no, nah, I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna go to. I found this school in New York City. Oh, that's only 12 miles away. So, 12 miles away yet. Well, I mean, it yet was super far, you no, know, worlds, it, worlds away. It was everywhere we went. Every weekend was either to my aunt's house, my other aunt's house, or my grandma's house. And where so, were they? Were they? They were in the city. Okay, they were yeah. in the city. Okay. Yeah, yeah. My my one aunt. Uh, I've got I've got a couple of cousins, and we would always you know visit one or the other. So we were in the city, and my folks had friends who were in the city. So we were we we had cousins. That we mm-hmm. had to visit, you know, that was that was what people did back then. You know, everybody jumped in the car and whisked away, and just you know, without seatbelts in the back of the station wagon. You're right, the, <laughs> the Volkswagen square back. Yeah. Um. So, did you go to SBA knowing you're all in on photography, or are you going there to explore what you might want to do? Oh, I, by the time I got accepted to SBA, I was all in. I would, or I had already done yearbook for two years um i knew i didn't after two after a year and a half i knew i didn't want to become a a, an architect but that was the foundation that turned out to be very very beneficial uh it was a great grounding i mean the first art architecture Mm -hmm. and uh it has uh it has helped me uh in ways equal to my my jazz uh, drumming lessons for three years with Gabe. Now, not to go back, did you get, was it three years and then you kind of just played on your own and stuck with it? Or did you, did you keep taking lessons or? I basically did, uh, did, did my stint, you know, through, through those uh, three years. And, and, you know, Gabe said, you've got all the tools now, you know, you know, first day in, he said, I'm only teaching you triplets. You learn that four four stuff on your own. That's easy. I'm te- I'm teaching you what you need to know so that you can become a musician. Right. And so you know, that's that that was the the clear understanding from the get go. Okay. And so. And know. and by the time you were at SVA, was that uh, kind of the end of your music career? I guess not the end. I know you play. You still play today. But was that you know kind of a closing of a chapter, moving on to another art? There was uh, there was a transition out of basement bands and you know friendship bands things that we just did for the for the sake of enjoyment mm-hmm. uh, and it was in effect replaced by processing film taking pictures you know doing doing all the things that that was required and and making that transition I mean it was a simple transition you you leave high school you leave things. Right. Be and then you transition and focus on photography. And uh, it was the first year I was there. Someone turned in a class in between whatever and said, "You heard about CBGB?" <laughs> like, uh, no. Said, well, you need to go. You need to. You need to see Patty Smith. She's been playing there. You're like every weekend. Now at this point, was Patty Smith a name, or were you like Patty Smith? Let me write that down. I will. I will see who this Patty Smith person is. Or was there kind of a buzz at the time, or was that name in the ether? It was. Um, it, it was. 
it was really in the ether at SVA. Okay. Uh, people had people who were students there had a knowledge and an awareness of a level of stuff that wasn't being printed about, wasn't being talked about. I mean, she was a writer for for um, for some music magazines, and right. she and Lenny both. And then they started doing this duet thing at St. Mark's Church, which I had never heard anything about. I mean, I knew the church; it would you know walk past it and all, because. Right. Um, you know, I was all over the the village, west and east, and um, you know everything south of Twenty Third Street where I was studying. Right. What were I mean before before this fateful uh, suggestion of CBGBs? What were where, where were you hanging out, or what was the scene? What was the scene? I guess before you discovered the the punk scene or the CBGB scene. I was uh, working for a weekly magazine a weekly newspaper not unlike uh, creative loafing okay and it was called the aquarian weekly out of uh, montclair new jersey so i had access to storylines i was given assignments i was sent places i mean i had to photograph uh reverend daniel berrigan who's that uh he and his brother were anti-war um advocates and um they basically um did a uh a protest and were able to get into uh some defense environment right and splash bombs with blood okay and made a <laughs> statement and got arrested for it but um but daniel you know continued striving to basically make people aware of uh, the war machine. Right, right. Um, so tell me about, you know, this friend of yours who clues you in on Patty Smythe and uh, – Smythe, sorry. <laughs> it's, it's more, it's more it's, my age. <laughs> oh, wow. That's okay. <laughs> Patty Smith. Um, so what did, did you – that wasn't the first when you went down to CBGBs. That wasn't the first artist that you saw, was it? No, no. I, I, um, she had she had already you know done that thing with television and and did six weekends in a row. And uh, I heard about it after that. You know, it was the puddle that was reverberating, and so I had heard something about this band called the Ramones, and so I decided, well, I'll go down and tell them I work for the Aquarian and see what they'll have to say about it and and uh roberta bailey who was who operated the door at uh, cbgb said uh you work for the aquarian you can you can come here anytime you want in fact just tell them that roberta said to let you in and so i you know in one fell swoop i had entree i had interest and and then you know i walk into cbgb and there's Hell's Angels sitting on sofas on, on big poobah pillows right in front of the stage and it's like okay well my cousin told me about Hell's Angels because she lives in the city and said be real nice to them you know? <laughs> so you know I thought good well, advice well maybe I should take a picture to just show because I'm a I'm a documentary photographer now and uh, I get the camera in position and one guy looks at me and he just kind of lowers his head a little bit, and I and and I pick up the camera, and he just nods a little side to side, and I went, I nodded, 
I put the camera down and said, okay. Next I subject. Won't, <laughs> it won't be a broken hand or a broken camera. <laughs> and I'll be able to take pictures of the Ramones instead. Did you think twice about bringing your camera? I mean, was it any big deal to even, like, show up with a camera to a uh, club? I, I, I had a camera with me every minute. Yeah. Uh, it was something that uh, a photographer by the name of Jay Mazel told the 250 students in the room at the School of Visual Arts. If you want to know how many of us were photographers, and nine out of ten people in the room raised their hands and said, okay, keep your hands up. Uh, how many of you have your camera? And th- you know, three out of four dropped. And he's turned to us and said, how can you be a photographer? First rule of photography, have Have a a camera. camera. (laughs) So it was was something that I knew I was in for and I was prepared for it. And yet the sound that that came out after one, two, three, four um, was well beyond my expectations. And I'd been to plenty of local battled bands and concerts and I mean I'd already seen Johnny Winters at, right. at the Capitol Theater in, in Passaic, New Jersey. I'd already seen The Dead. I'd already seen all these bands. New Riders. This whole litany of people from, from the early 70s until uh, I went to SVA. Um, and so yeah, it was... It was what was it amazing. about? What was it about the Ramones that was so... I mean, I, I feel like your answer is in sync with everyone's answer that's ever had a similar experience. And then we're talking 1974, 1975, around there. Yeah, late late 74, early 75. I mean, uh, it, visceral. Was it just, just a visceral effect. Like um, a raw, animalistic. No, no, it was it was. Um, there, there was a charm. There was uh, there was a a, a raw sophistication. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never saw them yelling at each other like some of the early. Uh, video that they that people recorded of the band, you know, where they were they're yelling at each other. No, I mean th- this was they had it in lockstep. They had it down. You know, it was it was clean. It was neat, and it lasted you know maybe two minutes, <laughs> and and they didn't stop. And then it's one, two, three, four. Hit the next song and hit the next song, and you know, sixteen minutes later they're off the stage. Yeah, I was gonna say an entire concert, an entire twenty concert. songs, sixteen minutes. <laughs> Uh, it was it was it was a little more than that, but um, yeah, it was uh, it, it was it was a visceral reality, and uh, and it, there was there was a, a comedy about it. There was a there was a, a, an innocence about it, and yet it was just so powerful. Right. Yeah, I never saw the Who live, but uh, they had that kind of intense reality mm-hmm. when they were performing. So, do you leave that night thinking? I'm coming back tomorrow night, the night after, the night after. I mean, what was? I, I went. I went back. I mean, I was, I was studying by day, working in a men's clothing store in the early evening, then coming back into the city with my car, photographing bands, going back out to New Jersey, sleeping, coming back in on the train in the morning. Right. Were you, were you living with your folks at the time? Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah, I was a student, and uh, you know, I didn't. That's a rockonomics did, question. That, that uh, didn't have you know, didn't have the. Say, 
I think New York was always unaffordable no matter what era <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for no, a young man, young woman. Yeah. It, it, I mean, I was very, uh, very happy to be uh, a student but, uh, and had no problem with, the, with the, uh, the, the transport factor of either taking the Erie Lackawanna into Hoboken and then jumping across on the PATH train or taking the bus, which was out at the corner. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and right into Port of Authority. Um, so, who else at this time? I mean, you, you've seen everyone, you know, that you know historically everyone knows about. Who else had a, a as big an impact on you as say the Ramones? The uh, Talking Heads were a three-piece band. It was before Jerry joined, mm-hmm. and uh, and they. They opened for the Ramones the second time I saw the Ramones play, and that's the first time I saw the Talking Heads, and that was uh, that was a crazy wild. I mean, totally opposite right. effect, you know. Given all the things you know about their first album and everything that potentially came before that, um, a band like uh, Blondie mm-hmm. with Debbie Harry and Chris and the whole gang. It was, uh, I mean, Clem. Burke playing drums like I'd never seen anybody play drums um, and then uh, you had this guy uh, who came out of the tough darts, uh, Robert Gordon and he shows up with Link Ray playing guitar for him, nobody knew who Link Ray was except for the eight guys you know, telling everybody just shut up and listen to this guy play guitar and it was the most amazing thing and then how did you go about – so you um, – did you ever go there on assignment or you were going there on your own documenting stuff as you saw fit? But Both. Okay. Every, every night was both because I became the point person for the Aquarian to just present work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had an interest. They were all about filling pages. And so if I could get an opportunity to photograph Joey – with his cat, they would print it. Right. If if I had pictures of Debbie Harry, of Patty Smith, of Mink Deville, um, they would they would print them. They they needed to get content in to fill those pages. You know, besides the ads, and um, uh, they were they were very open minded to having someone with an interest in taking the time to go into the city because, you know. Montclair, New Jersey, is a long way from from the Bowery, right. and yet, you know, I was I had I had that I bridged that gap, and it made it just made it easy for them to uh, to make things happen. Right. Let's get into some of your iconic uh, photos. You mentioned Joey Ramone with the cat. How did you know? Let's what's what's the setup to that? Well, the, the thing about CBGBs is it was kind of like a clubhouse. Um, it wasn't, uh, I mean, he would stand at the bar and talk to girls and, and Joey would have Dee Dee on one shoulder and, you know, he'd be talking to Richard Hell and then someone else would come along and, you know, Lou Reed would be in the back corner or the front corner, you know, talking to anybody who wanted to hear, you know, his thoughts on anything. It was, it was really a low key scenario the first few years, you know, uh, there was a time before they installed the 32-track recording board that was tied in with this incredible state-of-the-art sound system that they paid $20,000 for because the place was 
was a hollow tube mm-hmm. before that point, and a couple of marshals wouldn't even reach the front door. So um, they had a guy from MIT say, "I can make, I can fix this problem." <laughs> and so once that happened, then they literally recorded everything in the club that came through, and that's what they filled a store next door. You know, years later, with is every live show that you wanted, you could get from CBGB Records. I didn't know that. And oh I realized they had their own label. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. That's why they they started signing bands. That's why. And you know, uh, let's see. So, um, well, the Dead Boys were mm-hmm. were were signed to CBGB Records on their first album. So, and, and actually, Hilly managed them right early on, and uh, they they were part of the the incredible transition to the Ramones getting signed. And as soon as you get signed, you make your first record. As soon as you make your first record, boom, they put you on the road. you right. got to go to California. you got to play every place you could possibly play from here to there and, and make a name for yourself outside of New York. New York City. Yeah. Um, tell me about Hilly. Did you... Uh... Charming opera singer. You know he was an opera singer? No. At the Met. Are you kidding? I'm not kidding. He was in the choir. <laughs> the chorus, the choir. He was not a featured member, but when you hear him sing, you know, live from CBGBs, you know, he is just hitting that baritone right every single time. That's funny. Even the name CBGBs wasn't it? It's it's country bluegrass and blues and blues. Was that ever true? <laughs> it was. It was, and the problem is it didn't. It didn't, make, it didn't, didn't make stick, them, didn't sell the tickets. It didn't make them any money. They right. were on the Bowery. They had, you know, guys standing around. You know, there it, it was there was no there was nothing mean about any of it. It was just it was just a depressed area at a depressed time. And, you know, through it, you know, this incredible happening, you know, based on the premise that no covers. You mm-hmm. gotta you gotta play your own music. It's interesting. Um, so, so back to some of your subjects. Um, I, I noticed you mentioned like Lou Reed, and I know uh, through your portfolios like Frank Zappa, and I bring up those two because those two I think are notoriously curmudgeons a bit, <laughs> or I don't know how to put it politely, but yeah, I guess don't suffer fools or, you know, don't have the patience for, but I guess two questions were, were most of the artists and musicians, uh, welcoming to you and like, did they wanted the publicity or they wanted a good photograph or, you know, I guess, tell us, a, tell us a couple of stories. Well, you had asked earlier about, uh, Joey and cat, mm-hmm. his cat's name is cat. <laughs> and, uh, way to keep it straight. <laughs> and it, it was simpler. Yeah. Very simple. And, uh, and Joey would be, just stand at the bar and you could listen to him talk to somebody and and one one night he finished a little conversation i said uh i'd like to take your picture you know not on stage and he goes great can my cat be in it <laughs> he goes and i said yeah he goes okay let's go and i'm like okay because i live around the corner and i said okay so we literally walk out out of cbg go around the block and and block away here's this little three-story building and i goes oh i I forgot my key i'm like okay what do we want to do he goes well we just have to climb up the front of the building where that the metal 
That's, fire escape or something? No, no. It was that that those metal gratings. Oh, the, yeah, yeah. The and he's security got security He's got the keds on the little right. narrow ones, and I've got the clunky ones. <laughs> he, he goes, "You can go first. I said, "No, you go first. I'm going to watch you do this." And we literally climbed up the grating, and he pushed open the window and fell in the window, and I've fallen behind him with a bag of gear on my back, and there's his cat. And so he was sharing a space with uh, with Arturo Vega, uh, who was an incredible artist mm-hmm. who created their Gaba Gaba Hay uh, signage and all this other stuff. And um, so I just took a couple of pictures of Joey and his cat. And I said, do we have to climb out the window to leave? He goes, no, no we'll, we'll take the stairs. So we went back to the club and, you know, I thanked him and he went off and had another beer and started talking to somebody else and and Aquarian printed it and other people saw it and then I decided you know what there's got to be some other places that may want a picture this good and so I started looking around and uh, talked to the people who ran Punk Magazine right uh, Holstrom and, and that, that gang and, and then uh, this uh, wonderful little publication called um, Trouser Press right and so they were looking for someone with studio abilities. They didn't want to keep just presenting live show covers. And I said, well, yeah, I work in a studio, you know, by this point. And so I can easily make that happen. You know, I had the ability to set up anywhere uh, with lighting and stuff. And so I started doing covers for, for Ira Robbins and, and everybody at uh, – Trouser Press. Okay. So were you PAing at the time? So you had, were you working for a photographer and then you could use a studio at the time? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So it was, um, you know, it was the kind of thing that uh, one, one ability by day led to an opportunity at night. And then we just, I just kept cross pollinating mm-hmm. between music and photography. Um, you mentioned Punk Magazine. That's Legs McNeil, right? Well, Legs was, uh, yeah, he was the resident punk. one aspect. Yeah, he's the resident punk. I mean, he, he and Roberta and John all came down from Connecticut, uh, as the story goes, and wanted to make something of themselves, uh, but do it in a way completely mm-hmm. different and distinct from their parents. Um, and I guess it, that that scene itself, like, was it, this, was it a rotating cast of like 50 characters i mean did everyone know everybody at the time i mean how what was the vibe there were uh there were camps you know there were they were they were clicks yeah sure i mean so um you know someone like uh someone like debbie harry may not spend have spent a lot of time hanging out with patty smith debbie and her gang you know originally debbie was a was a waitress at max's kansas city mm-hmm. and originally the bands that played max's played max's and the bands that played cb's right. played cb's and debbie played cb's and broke that thing open and then all of a sudden it's like everybody's playing wherever they could and this is all again still because they hadn't gotten contracts for albums yet and right. as soon as that happened then they all jettisoned they jettisoned from the scene and second tier and third tier bands like um the dead boys filled those filled that vacuum mm-hmm. and then they literally rose to 
kind of a star status and and, and on and on it, it went ad infinitum, you know, through the 90s. Right. Were you loyal to CBs or were, did you go to Mud Club and Max's and did you go wherever the go wherever the story was, so to speak? I, I was welcome at Max's on the same in the same regard as I was at CBs. Uh, you know, Peter uh, Crowley, I think he uh, he had taken over Max's from Mickey, and um, and so he, and he was very kind and said, yeah, yeah, man, you come in anytime you want. You know, it's like. Because they wanted the press, they wanted mm-hmm. things to happen, right. and it wasn't costing them anything for me to be there. So, sure, you you can photograph the bands, and so the opportunity came, and you know, I met people there, and all of a sudden, this gal saying, "You have to see this new band. They're just they're amazing. They're from Cleveland. Uh, they're called the Cramps. They're going. I want I want you to meet them. You know, well, how do you know? Well, I I run their 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 fan club." <laughs> A band who had yet to play at Max's for the very first time Funny. has a fan club. <laughs> I mean, that's how charming the whole scene was. I mean, these people were just living a dream. Right. You know, they were they were doing exactly what they wanted to do, and no one was telling them no. They were telling them, yeah, just keep doing it. Interesting. It's a great, a wonderful time. Um, and you were saying. Uh, I read that being a musician helped you uh, with photography. Oh, yeah. I mean, just, I guess, just understanding beats, song structure. I know what's coming. Ebb and flow, you kind of, you get, you get, you know what to be ready for. You know there's going to be a break. You know when they're going right. to open their mouth. You know when they're going to hit that note. I've seen it. I'd seen it for years and admired it as as a fan and then as a player right. and then and I'm making the most of it so Debbie Harry's ripped Batman t-shirt happened momentarily before I took that picture of her and that was the in effect relief of that moment of this is driving me crazy right. kind of thing and so she just kept tugging on this thing and I'm wondering why is she tugging on this t-shirt until she ripped the shoulder right out of it, and uh, and after after that set, I went backstage and said, "What happened?" And she's back there crying at she had torn her favorite <laughs> Batman T-shirt. Funny. What um? Who would you say were some of your contemporaries that were kind of you know documenting the scene along with you? Or I had uh, David Godless on one shoulder. At the front of the stage, at CB, you know, CBGB stage was probably not even as tall as this right. table from the floor that we were all standing on. Um, the floor at CBGB should have been documented. I never took a picture of it, but <laughs> the, they, the bathroom actually. No, no, everyone took pictures <laughs> of the bathroom. No one took pictures of the floor at CBGBs. They couldn't afford to put wood flooring on top of rotten wood flooring. They put doors down on top of oh, rotten wood flooring. <laughs> this was before they did the, the whole sound system. So people were, you know, you could trip and kill yourself just walking toward the stage at, at CBGB. Um, but I had David Godless on one shoulder and Yvette Roberts on the other shoulder. You know, everyone was ebbing and flowing and it was it was a charming time. Everybody shot different things, different ways. Mm-hmm. David never used the flash. I'm always using a flash. 
a bet went back and forth. I mean, we just we were just kind to one another. It wasn't like being at a Queen con- Queen's concert, you know, and or any of the big major. Th- and everyone is like jockeying for position, right. like you know, it's the a crazy time and and trying to get a better shot and pushing and pulling. No, everyone was just chill. Right. Now, as someone who lived through it, what have you? I guess has anybody accurately depicted it? And I, I can I can I've, I I can say I've never lived through it, but I've seen a couple of I've started a couple of movies on them that were just god awful. Um, I read the Please Kill Me book, which I thought was pretty good, being an oral history. But is there anything in your eyes that captured you know the feeling of you know what you saw firsthand? Besides my photos, yes. Um, every time someone came into CBGB with a video camera, they came in with two 10Ks. Right. That wasn't CBGBs, yeah. and everybody knew it wasn't, and everyone put up with it because everyone knew you needed a lot of light. I mean, we're all shooting with flash, but that's a, you know, an 80th of a second, so it wasn't like it was, it was a problem. But um, yeah, video never really told a story, and uh, there was a there was a production that took place down in uh, Georgia, at, uh, Savannah School, uh, near Savannah School Art and Design, that had starred a few people. Uh, it was it was a it was a comic, uh, not farce, but it was it was it was comic book related because of John Holstrom's approach to. How he he created the 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 magazine called Punk, right? And uh, and they were they were basically riffing on his approach to it. It was like if you see David Godless's work, CBGB and the punk rock scene was one thing by day and by night because he never used flash. You look at other people's work, and it's it's more traditional rock capture stuff, but. Again, the, the stories and the camaraderie uh, wasn't uh, wasn't ever captured. It, right. w- it wasn't truly. I mean, David shows people leaning on cars out front, which looks kind of foreboding, but it was just too hot to be in the club because they had no AC, and so everyone hung out front. If you want to re-experience CBGB tonight, <laughs> um, it's really simple. You go to Snug Harbor. Okay, because Snug Harbor is the CBGB of today, and basically it's too hot to be inside at times, so you go in the back. They had a back door way back when, and that's where the bands loaded in and out of, and the bands hung out behind the stage, kind of like the visual light outside. Same thing with Snug, okay. out back or out front. It's just you know, and that's where the camaraderie continued i mean people weren't mean to each other right. it was just as chill as it is there then as it is here now that's interesting i'm, I'm have you been to snug harbor oh yeah, yeah shadowgraphs love snug harbor they say it's like the venue to play at the show. Yeah, it is it's magical yeah that's what they say. i mean i gotta get out more i'm the first to admit it no it's good it's good to hear that <laughs> i'm glad you have an interest because that's what it's all about yeah for sure um so what concluded your that era for you? Well, I grew up. <laughs> I, I had to uh, graduate and get a job. I uh, I graduated 
uh, I got a job, and that job led to uh, life beyond CBGB. Um, the scene for me at CBs and Maxes continued to evolve even in the second and third iteration of bands that took the place of Debbie, Joey, and... Uh, like Talking Heads. Talking Heads. Yeah, they, they, once they got contracts, you know, they put them on the road. And then they weren't playing there every other weekend or every month or whatever. And, and it was it was a litany of, of ever-evolving band choices. At a certain point, you know, I just started to focus that much more on photography. And I just spent less time at the clubs because they were different bands, newer bands, you know, not bands that I was as enamored by, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the, the style of music. So, um, it was a uh, kind of thing that, uh, my work, my assignment work, which, uh, involved, you know, photographing Frank Zappa and pho- photographing, all the band that I did for uh, for Trouser Press kind of took me into other realms. And then I was, like I say, working in photo studios. And that was a you know, 10 to 12 to 14-hour event since mm-hmm. I was the guy who did all the film processing and, you know, lent, lent myself to growing in that realm and, and building a business. Right. Um, another question I want to ask you about that era is, I mean, you seem to be, you know, part of the small group that was, you know, you're, you're active in it and you're, you're doing something about it. You're documenting it. Whereas I guess, you know, going back to like uh, referencing Please Kill Me is I feel like there was so much self-destruction in that in that in that era, I guess, for lack of a better description. Like a lot of a lot of the guys, you know, a lot of the bands, you know, had some serious issues (laughs) whether it's uh i mean i guess drug abuse was rampant but i mean was there any i mean how do you look back on that you know in retrospect did was it were you were you watching a car crash at certain times or did you have to kind of get away from it to look back and be like some people should have taken better care of themselves well you know given the era that it was uh in terms of the economics of the city of new york almost going bankrupt Bankrupt, for the second time uh, there wasn't a lot of money. And so for those who didn't have a lot of money, it was, it was tougher. So basically, um, the way that, uh, that legs tells the story is, is it's a juicier story mm-hmm. because he, he saturates you know, each of the stories, everybody's day to day with, with you know, the juicy stuff, right. and and it wasn't quite so concentrated, mm-hmm. you know, or at least, you know, you didn't see that that soft white underbelly, right, every day, you know, and but when you want to write a story, you want to you want people to read it, right. So, um, and, and these are first and and second accounts. It's it's you know a thousand times of what I'm telling you about my accounts. So, you know, and, and that's what made just kill me. Uh, so provocative. Right. Right. I'll give you that. (laughs) 
Oh, it truly is. I mean, you know, and you people didn't talk about all the stuff that you read about. Right. You know, it wasn't common knowledge. So, you know, but you could see Johnny Thunders get darker and darker. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the, the eye sockets especially. Right. You know, but but you, but he still had a charm. Uh, from start to finish, you know. Right. Um, so when did you end up leaving the area? When I moved to Charlotte. Okay. When was that? In May of 1983. Okay. So completely different era, obviously. Well, it was, yeah. I mean, the, the music was shifting. I mean, black and white, ska, the whole thing had kind of kind of taken the, ed- taken the edge. You know, they were the crest. You know that that occurred when when punk became new wave and new wave became diluted. Mm-hmm. You know it was it was eras. You know going forward and uh, you know John Lennon gets shot and, right. and New York changes and um, and then it just continues to evolve. So um, yeah, the uh, the music shifts and. And life shifts. Sure. Uh, opportunities come about, and you make decisions of okay. I think uh, I think want to start a family. I think I want to want to live in a house. So how did you find how how did you find Charlotte? An ad in the New York Times. <laughs> Was it like wanted artistic types? Sun, I think they're still running that ad, by the way. <laughs> Sun, Sunbelt City photographer seeking photographer. Is it a like? Of a, a personal ad? No, no. This is this was. Uh, one <laughs> is that ad. how you met your wife? <laughs> no, this is this was how uh, Ron Chapel found me, uh, along with uh, sixty other people who, who replied to that ad and said, "Where is the Sunbelt City?" I've never heard Charlotte described as the Sunbelt City. Well, that's how uh, Ron and, and Duncan Fick, uh, his his rep at the time, uh, posed. The request in the New York Times. How funny! Yeah, it was really amazing. So, but what, so, what were they after? They wanted a stable. They, they, they wanted were, to bring down a stable to represent. They, they wanted. A, they wanted another photographer to work in combination with Ron. Okay. And be able to, you know, do all the still life, and and all all the other things that were you know being asked of the studio, which was located on South Tryon Street, where the green is right now. Where's that? Which one? Because uh, the uh, first and first and Tryon. There's a little little little. There was a little alley called First Street. Okay. St. Peter's is on one side of the street. Okay. Uh, the Green. It's a little park. All right. Is where the Stand and Snack and uh, and uh, the uh, original uh, florist shop. Okay. Ratcliffe florists were selling us flowers. To do ads for Ivy's and Belks, <laughs> yeah, it was it was a real flower shop. It was really something. Before Bonnie took over and turned it into the Carpe Diem. Okay, yeah, <laughs> location one. Um, so I, I'm going to wrap up in a minute. I don't mean to cut off your uh, your your modern day existence, but uh, <laughs> being rockonomics, I want to s- stick to the, the the music end of it. But you're yeah. still you're still now, you're playing more music now than you ever have. More music now than I have in a long time. And you're juggling like three different kind of band combos. Three, three totally different 
scenarios. Uh, All right, let's do uh, let's do our final five. I actually gave him the uh, the questions beforehand because you know let's experiment how uh, you know if it's better to be <laughs> the flow. We figure if if you know if the podcast takes off and we get to you know twenty thirty episodes, people will know what's coming, so it's not you know a big deal. So, question one was, what's your most extravagant uh, expense on a music related purchase uh, I would have to say it's uh, the uh, eight feet of vinyl and 600 CDs that I still own <laughs> so so an accumulated uh, oh yeah an accumulated expenditure yeah, but only eight feet of vinyl eight feet or 80 feet eight eight feet yeah That's, okay yeah just but, the, but recently is this like no this is from back in the day yeah this okay is, this is from uh you know the beatles forward okay yeah i mean that that was the the cut down version of what what you know came here from new york okay <laughs> Where you, had was, to, you had to save on shipping so yeah yeah something like that um question two is if i gave you a million dollars to donate to a charity who who's the lucky charity that would be the light factory What's, what do they do uh, the Light Factory is, uh, is a center for photography and film here in Charlotte. It's uh, 40 plus years old. I've only been a member for 30 plus years, um, and uh, it's it's right in Plaza Midwood. Uh, it used to be at Spirit Square, on and off, you know, during the entire history of of our being here in Charlotte, and uh, they do an incredible job of. Uh, presenting the work of contemporary artists working in film and photography cool if they hear this i'm sure they'll give you a discount on your next uh oh i am i'm a member, next membership i'm a member in good standing uh <laughs> due to their annual auction that i i donate work to. oh cool yeah it's very it's, cool it is really cool um question three was um i know i phrased it differently in my email to you but it's it's all based on like baseball walk-up music you know when the guy's walking up to the plate he gets to get a song but if you're walking up to the pearly gates after a good long you know prosperous life uh what song what's your walk-up music to the pearly gates uh john lennon's imagine nice only only played one time what do you mean well they've heard it enough up there <laughs> no no it's, i just it, you know when you listen to that song one time through it is yeah it's it's just a perfect thing sure sure perfect in that setting too um the antithesis of that is uh if things don't go well uh what song is stuck on repeat in hell imagine <laughs> how's that but but is it imagine covered by no it's imagine just play it over and over and oh. over and over and over again <laughs> okay i gotcha just like every hit on yeah, the radio sure. they kill them yeah I've had a theory that someone was going to answer that way, that there's, it would be the, the same, same answer for everything. It's good, though. I guess you, yeah. I, I, I take your point. It is, it is a, a tricky situation. Yeah. Too much of a good thing. Definitely. Yeah. Funny. Uh, and final, final question is, uh, and I'm interested to hear, what's your favorite uh, concert, your best live experience? Oh, I've got 40 of them here, but... Um, <laughs> I would have to just. Uh, I've already told you about Johnny Winter at uh, at the Capitol Theater in 1972, one of my first shows ever. But um, I uh, I was busy working uh, when when Richard Lloyd performed at Snug Harbor, 
Richard Lord being the lead guitar player in the band Television. Mm -hmm. And uh, amazingly enough, Paul Andrews called me and said, Richard Lloyd is going to play in West Asheville, down the street from my house. How would you like to come up and stay the weekend and we'll go and see Richard Lloyd? And I had no idea he had a new album out. I had no idea what even sounded like. And my wife, Connie, and I said, let's do it. And so we went to see Richard Lloyd about a month ago. And I bought the CD, which is all the songs he played, along as well as, you know, a little Marquee Moon and a few other things. And it was just stellar. I mean, it was just amazing. That's awesome. And everybody who saw him at Snug said absolutely the same thing. And they, those who didn't get to see him were all kicking themselves. So the greatest concert is always the most recent one. Because it takes everything before it sure. and carries it forward. Interesting. Um, so anything you want to uh, – I know you. I was going to point out uh, I, I went on your icon gallery where people can buy um, prints, um, very beautiful looking. I know they're done really well, You know, good paper, high quality. And so that's icongallery.com to get yeah. there. And also yeah. your website is just uh, mitchellcarney.com. .com. Yeah. All right. Well, we appreciate you coming on. Thanks for uh, reliving the some of the glory days. I don't know. Anything anything else you want to leave us with? It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you. Thank you, Nick. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thanks again to Mitchell Carney. And thanks to all of you out there for the early support of the podcast so far. Please spread the word of our existence. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Leave us a rating, comment, and all that good stuff. If you'd like to reach us directly, you can email us at dill at rockonomicspodcast.com. That's D-I-L-L, dill is in pickle, at rockonomicspodcast.com. And shower, shower us with praise like only our mother could. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode, so we hope you'll join us again. 